every generation, there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People, a podcast dedicated to exploring, analyzing, and celebrating the television series Angel. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and every week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. Now, that means spoilers, and a lot of them, so consider this your official spoiler warning. And with that out of the way, let's go to work making the jump from the Sunnydale Cemetery to the L.A. Morgue author, scholar, and hot chick with superpowers, Dale Guffey, back with me again tonight. (laughs) How are you doing, Dale? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm I'm well. I am well. It's been cold, but not treacherous here, so I am blessed. Yeah, um... In my part of North Carolina, it's been cold and rainy, but we got away from all the winter stuff. So we've been pretty lucky. Excellent. I want to see the Angel Mobile in ice. I want to (laughs) see them trying to drive on ice sometime. Um, I'm trying to remember. I mean, obviously there was the Miracle Snow episode of Buffy, but he didn't have the Angel Mobile there. I'm trying to remember if there's ever a snow episode of Angel. I don't. I don't occasionally you get rain yeah nothing's coming to mind but that's about it all right well i will listeners add that to your angel rewatch bingo card (laughs) and call it out if we ever come upon an episode that featured snow in la specifically i'm trying right i think there probably were episodes like wasn't there between seasons didn't he go to tibet or something wasn't there uh isn't there an episode like when when a season was, starts? Ah, oh, it was something like that. I don't know that it was Tibet. Yeah, something. But it was something like that, and there was there might have been snow, but it wasn't in L.A. Right. Yeah, he didn't have it. He didn't have the convertible with him, so it doesn't count. Doesn't count. Um. Okay. So tonight, is there any business we need to talk about? Uh, I guess I'll just mention that uh, I said you were back with me because uh, you. You never left. You were literally here for the the previous episode, which was our very special episode. Um, and as is always the case, whenever we, whenever I on any podcast try to talk about anything timely or of the moment, um, in that episode, which was our discussion of where do we go from here now that all of the these new allegations have dropped and and uh, Joss is in the hot seat, um, we mentioned certain. Uh, names that had not yet voiced their support. And literally, as we were recording that episode, those people were out there voicing their support or making their various comments. So it's difficult to try and keep on top of things when you're recording a podcast and not putting it out until 24 or 48 hours later. 
but you do the best you can with what you have. That's true. And, and you know, that's, that's what we were doing. And tonight, you're going to do the best you can with what you have, which is me. Oh, I am, <laughs> I am in the best possible, <laughs> the best possible hands. Um, and you gave me three great ones to work with today. So thank you for that. Well, you're very welcome. I'm glad that you appreciate these. Uh, a lot well, of people, and- a lot of people give at least the early parts of season one of Angel a, a rough go of it. But um, I mean, it's obviously it was struggling to find its feet, and there it I'll was. mention some stuff in these three episodes. But I I loved the show from the very beginning. So I did too, and I do think it. I I, I see it. it. I do think it grew. Um, but it was trying so hard to differentiate itself from from Buffy uh-huh. and you know, the first few episodes, they definitely are, they're, they're trying to figure out the dynamic that yeah. I think the, the actors are still trying to figure out how to mesh. And, um, I, I will be the first to say so that no one else has to point it out to me. I love Doyle. I always have, <laughs> I have from the first time I saw the show and, um, we don't have to be spoiler free, so I can go ahead and say we don't get enough of him. No. And um, I was just—I had not rewatched these in a really long time. And let, let's just go ahead and say it now: there will never be a reunion show because it's been too damn long, <laughs> and even vampires age. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I should name the episodes we're talking about tonight. So tonight yes. we're going to be discussing episodes 103, In the Dark, uh, 104, I Fall to Pieces, and 105, Room with a View. Uh, so we can jump right into uh, In the Dark. And yeah, Boreanaz is babyface Boreanaz in these early episodes. Oh, he is. Um, he's much broader now he's much beefier now than he was yeah. in 1999 so in the dark originally aired uh, october 99 it's written by douglas petrie i'm going to start calling out the the creative teams on these episodes more than i usually do uh this one's written by douglas petrie and directed by breath bruce seth green featuring seth green in the guest cast i just realized I know, that i always feel like i have to say no relation right to seth green right or is there hmm but uh, anyways, so I like that you mentioned that the show was trying so hard to differentiate itself from Buffy. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It does. And or it is trying. And eventually it really nails it, uh, yeah. finding its own identity as something separate from the original series. Mm-hmm. However, this episode, <laughs> um, it's a it's a great episode. I absolutely love it. Uh, it is a direct crossover with uh, Buffy, episode 403, The Harsh Light of Day. So it right. goes from The Harsh Light of Day to In the Dark. In the Dark. Um, and it is the first official crossover. Uh, we get a number of these in the early seasons. I think season one and two. I can't remember if they really happen much after that. but I don't think they do after that. Yeah. Because again, I, I think... I think it's like any other spinoff. You know, you have a built-in audience for the first show. Right. So you can kind of use that to 
pad the beginning of the new spinoff, mm-hmm. but you need for the new show to have its own, uh, its own fan base and its own identity. Right. So it's a delicate balance there. And this really isn't in the dark is the episode where they just throw the Buffy kitchen sink at it. They, yeah, they really do. So I'm, I cannot possibly complain because the two crossover characters happen to be Spike and Oz, two of my very favorites. So, and when I, when I started rewatching in the dark, I had literally forgotten the cold open of this episode. (laughs) Oh man. And it's the only thing anyone remembers about this episode. I am just howling because you have this wonderful bit where Spike is doing this this narration. Oh, it's so good. And it's it's perfect. It just is delightful. It's so well written. It just nails the character. It's it's a beautiful I don't think I gave it enough credit. Uh, maybe on any of my previous viewings of it um, for what it was actually doing. I've just always basked in the glory that is Spike and his snarky (laughs) relationship with Angel. Um, But what it's actually doing is, I mean, I guess you could argue it's telling the audience more about Spike than it is about Angel, but I think it's actually, I think his snarky narration, his voiceover of what's actually going on down in the alley as, as, uh, Angel, the big black clad hunk of a night thing, is saving the damsel in distress. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's that's also telling you it's introducing the character of Angel as well to new <laughs> viewers. Uh-huh. Um, anytime you can get that point counterpoint between Spike and Angel, that's always a good thing. And it it pains me. This is a fantastic episode, but it pains me that we have to wait four more full seasons I know. before we fully get to invest in the on-screen dynamic between James Marsters and David Boreanaz. I know. I'm so with you on that. I and guess. I guess. I don't I, think I, mean, I had heard this before, but I guess at this point they were considering adding Spike to the show. I don't know if yeah, that's but, why he was here, but apparently there were some talks about maybe Spike should go to the show, too. Yeah, I again, I don't I'm not too sure Greenwald knew exactly what he wanted to keep from Buffy and where he wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Um so I do think they were kind of testing the waters here, but it was also really funny to me that even though I hadn't seen this in so long that I had literally forgotten that this is how in the dark starts. That blows my mind. I, mean, I was quoting it. <laughs> Because that Spike's voiceover is just so memorable. That's you know the, the I, Nancy boy hair jail jail the yeah. angel mobile. It it's just four delightful minutes there at the very not that all four are his voiceover yeah but it's it's great you you have Angel saving the damsel in distress no no helping those in need is my job and working up a load of sexual tension and prancing away like a magnificent poof poof oh my gosh and Marster's just just is perfect he's absolutely perfect he's a beautiful man I love it. So, and I was also reminded, though, of how much I love the theme for Angel. The song? Yeah. I adore it. I adore it. Darling Violetta, just, I I love this. Yeah. 
quite possibly more than nerf herders for, for Buffy. I was going to be careful, but yes, I'm thinking the same thing. Um, I don't want to come off. I'm also a sucker for a good cello. Well, so. um, yeah, I wish I could remember who, I, I can't remember if it was Steve Halfyard or not. At, at one of the slayages, it must have been the most recent one, uh, gave a presentation about the uh, gender differences between the opening themes for the two shows, how the the theme song for Buffy is very masculine in its instrument choices and its, its oh. construction and how that's the kind of music that theme would typically be applied to a more masculine action adventure show. And then you come over to Angel with its male lead uh, and they give it a much softer, more classical, slightly feminine intro theme. All right. To be fair, Steve Halfyard is brilliant. She is amazing. I so, I hope I'm giving her the proper credit. I hope that's who did it. But um, please, listeners, if you know differently, uh, write in and correct me. But um, regardless, I just think ever since uh, I saw that presentation, I can't listen to either theme without thinking about that, without that meaning something now. So. So. I don't know. Part part of me really thinks that this episode although it has some beautiful bits in it I really think the whole thing is just to get Oz and Spike in LA it's you know it, it's pretty much a MacGuffin it 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 really is just a it feels like almost a network demand or a network mandate of look we'll give you a new show but you have to promise within the first three or four episodes that we're going to get a direct crossover. Like you've got to bring some big name or whatever. It feels kind of like that. So in terms of story, it's a little bit light. It's kind of a, yeah. it's kind of a nothing episode uh, that you could cynically say is only here to serve as a crossover and to bring James and Seth in. I agree. But, but it's the, still, it's you... still a fun episode. It's a fun episode, and you get some big themes set up here. Um, I also made sure to double-check who the director of photography was. Uh-huh. And this is uh, in the Herbert Davis seasons. Okay. He was a DP for the first two. Um, he went on to a lot of acclaim with Grey's Anatomy. Oh, okay. Um, he was a DP over there for like, 262 episodes wow so the man knows what he's doing and they they really when they set up angel one of the things they really wanted to go for was this whole film noir look Mm -hmm. and i really noticed that when they're in the tunnels that um if you've seen the 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 movie i always associate with that is uh the third man Okay. Yeah. I hadn't thought and, of that. I, and the whole bit with Orson Welles in the shadow and then uh-huh. in the sharp, sharp light. Um, and he may not have had that in mind at all. It's just kind of where my mind goes. And it, it really does have a film noir look to it. And I just remember when Angel was being launched thinking, this is never going to work. <laughs> This is a vampire private detective. Yeah, this is never going to work. <laughs> um, oh, how, and, na- how naive we were. Well, and it, to be fair, 
this is still where they're trying to find their feet. Yeah. But but it does work, and I and I mean I've I am not about to um, contradict Stacy Abbott in anything <laughs> relating to Angel. But it, it does work. Um, I think it I think it works because you do have this interesting trio of characters of Angel. You have Cordelia who is on her own path of maturation and redemption mm-hmm. and you have Doyle Beautiful who Doyle. is a lovely bridge between the two because Doyle has secrets that Cordelia doesn't know he's got a few Angel doesn't know mm-hmm. and he he t- he kind of turns into um, whatever the plot needs him to do yeah. He can he can fight when he needs to fight. He can you know, he, he he's got resources in the underground demon community when he needs to. Well, of course. You know, whatever. He he really is kind of plot convenience warehouse and even with that, there's something just endearing about his crush on Cordelia. Yeah, I wish I always liked Doyle, but mm-hmm. I wish that I had appreciated him more on some of my, certainly on my first watch through of the show, but uh, even in my earlier subsequent reviewings, uh, he always, I always liked him, but I know, spoiler alert, I know he doesn't stick around right. very long. Um, but for some reason, maybe I'm just, people who know me will laugh hysterically at this notion. Maybe I'm just getting emotional in my old age. Um but on this watch, I'm really struck by, and we'll, we'll get to it when we do uh, Room with a View. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I was really struck by how they were setting up a an emotional background for Doyle. And knowing where that goes, it really struck me as sort of powerful this time. Yeah, um, I and I did notice things that I had not noticed before. Um, and his so... performance, Glenn Quinn's performance... I don't know. I never understood that what was truth and what was rumor or whatever. But, uh, you know, I've heard over the years that one of the reasons he doesn't stay on the show is there was behind the scenes conflict or because he was having substance abuse problems. I don't know what the truth of it is. Yeah. Um, and here's my here's my problem with all of that. We now know, we have irrefutable evidence that Joss is an unreliable narrator. (laughs) He's difficult, yeah. And so I no longer trust anything he's ever said. Yeah. He was real close-mouthed about why Glenn Quinn left the show. At one point, he claimed that that was always the, um, the plan. Yeah, I think I remember hearing that. That yeah. Glenn Quinn was there to get the show started, but the plan was always, spoiler alert, to bring in Wesley. Mm-hmm. And I've never believed it. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Why believe would that. you invest that much in in a character for half a season? In fact, I tried watching. I I, I had in the back of my mind watching these three episodes. Uh, what eventually happens with Cordelia in the wake of Doyle leaving the show and trying to picture if any of that is being seeded here. 
Like if, if there's any hints happening that that's what's eventually going to happen to her. And I suppose if you squint, you could say again, when we get to room with a view, this will come more into focus, but I guess you could squint and say that they are showing that she is, she's in the process of sort of learning her lesson from who she was as a high schooler. Uh, And that maybe part of that is setting her up to take a much more, you know, central heroic role. But I don't necessarily think that's specific to what happens to her post Doyle. Yeah. I I, I don't think they're saying. uh, I think you're trying too hard. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I do. (laughs) I do. I think you're trying too hard. Um, now knowing what happened to Glenn Quinn in real life uh-huh. and I, I am assuming that Whedon knew Quinn from his time on Roseanne. I think, I think that's what I've always believed. Yeah. Um, now I don't know how much interaction they had, but I'm assuming that that's where he originally knew the guy, although maybe not. Um, but they were both on the show. So it wouldn't surprise me. But, I mean, Quinn had a history of of substance abuse that goes back to, like, the late 80s. -hmm. Most of his life, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, maybe he's, this is going to sound bad, I'm afraid, but I've always thought he's the Robert Downey Jr. who didn't get better. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he leaves the show, I guess it would be, uh, early 2000, right? Mm -hmm. And he passed away from heroin overdose in 2002. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, anyways, I don't know. We're, we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit here wondering uh, about all that. Uh, I guess let's focus on the episodes that we have of him. But, but they they are setting his character up in these three episodes, and I don't think they're setting him up to leave. Right. Because I mean, they're they're giving depth and they're giving backstory, and they're making him a richer, more three dimensional character. So I I just don't buy it. So for instance, we we learn in this episode that Doyle is apparently not just a drunk; he's a maudlin drunk. Who starts quoting Angela's ashes, <laughs> but mixes it with the Flintstones. It's perfect. It's there's it a perfect, perfect there's a perfect crossover there. And you you know full well that that would have been a really interesting night in the bar. Yeah. So um, Oz is in town being all yes. laconic. Yes. God, Oz, I've missed you so terribly. I know. I was I was the same <clears throat> way. So. He's there delivering this MacGuffin known mm-hmm. as the Gem of Amara. Yep. Um, and I am reminded that in the supernatural fandom or the supernatural world, Amara is God's sister. Interesting. So there's, there's something about the name. Um, but, huh. but anyway, it's this mystical ring that apparently only works on vampires, but it renders a vampire 100% unkillable. If that's not a MacGuffin, nothing that's, is. It's, yeah. These are the damn letters of transit from Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> damn it. Stop trying to kill me. I'm not trying to kill you. Um, man, who else has compared the Gem of Amara to the transit letters in... <laughs> 
Casablanca. See, well played. See, and to me, that's just obvious. Of course. This is either why you have me on the podcast or why you try to avoid having me on the podcast. No, it's why you should I'm be on. Sure it's why you should be on every episode. You should take <laughs> over this this thing. <clears throat> okay, so, so if I could um, keep but, from choking getting, to death for five minutes. Getting, but getting back to Doyle having dimensions here, there. <clears throat> so we we have this thing come up because Spike is in town, and you know, Spike and Angel are going to fighty fight fight, and. <laughs> Angel doesn't want anything bad to happen to Doyle and Cordelia, so he says, you know, Cordelia, you need to go stay with Doyle for your safety. She goes to this crap apartment. But I know Which is better than hers. Which is still better than hers. And one of the things I noticed, because, you know, I, I love set dressing. Uh-huh. We'll talk about that in Room with a View. <clears throat> We're going to talk about but, a lot of things when we get to Room with a View. We're going to talk about a lot of things in Room with a View. But one of the things I notice is that Doyle has books. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them. Well, obviously, he's read Angela's Ashes. I, I feel like, um, man, I, I don't have any of this at hand right now, and I might be totally making this up, but I feel like him reading at some point becomes a thing. Maybe I'm conflating him with Angel, because I know there's... I know Angel gets a lot of shots of him sitting behind his desk just trying to read a book right. in peace. But um, anyways, yeah, I, I feel like books are – somehow I associate Doyle with books. I don't know. Well, and we often see Doyle with a spell book. You know, like, And right. again, when with a view, we'll, we'll have that. <laughs> right. But so some interesting stuff is going on here. We have We have the Spike Angel thing over here, but we also have – Angel and the damsel that he saved named Rachel. Mm-hmm. One more, who's... one more of the faces from the opening credits identified. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, um, angel, uh, not angel, angel saved Rachel from her lousy boyfriend. Who's, I don't know, named Lenny, Lenny, because naming him lousy was going to be too obvious. <laughs> um, and of course, they have this great bit in there where Rachel explains how hard it is for her to actually break up with him. Mm-hmm. I thought this was really good. I did too. Because um, she points out, you know, it's good for a while. Yeah. Um, and I think I think that's a great precedent to set it. It doesn't stick in every episode of the series, but I feel like the series does um, deal with this uh, increasingly as the show goes on. The notion that uh, there's more to Angel, like helping the hopeless, than just beating up the abusive boyfriend and collecting a paycheck or whatever, as he finally does in this three, in the, one of these three episodes. Right. Um, that yeah, he could have beat up Lenny and. Uh, you know, sent her on her way and she would have, even if Lenny had been scared off, she would have gone back to Lenny. She might've gone back yeah. to Lenny. I, I just feel like the, the notion of aftercare or whatever, that there's and, more and to she it. She makes, than... she even makes a point that she's more scared of what she'll right. do. Right. Because she knows he's bad for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, this is a really good indication because in a lot of ways, the episodes kind of, you know, Monster of the Week it's, sort of it's, thing. It's filler, yeah. But it, it's a good 
illustration of where Angel wanted to go darker. Mm-hmm. Really wanted to do the film noir thing. And I think I think does it even even pretty pretty well this early on. So okay, as if two vampires isn't enough, we also get Marcus. Marcus, who looks way too much like a young Stanley Tucci for my <laughs> comfort level. Yeah, I've seen that guy in other stuff. Um, yeah. I didn't put the I didn't have Stanley Tucci in mind, but now that you mention it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. He, um, he's played by an actor named Kevin West, who, mm-hmm. and it's this great bit because he is wearing this super crisp white shirt. That and stays Angel, clean. And it stays clean. And Angel, of course, is in head-to-toe black. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the white hat, black hat thing. Spike even calls him white hat in his opening. White, he even calls him white hat. Yeah. Um. And Marcus is not just a vampire. He's one. Have you noticed you can't be a vampire and have, I I don't know, any sort of normalcy, any, (laughs) any at all? We got railroad spikes. Marcus tortures people while listening to Mozart. Of course. Personally, I prefer his older, funnier symphonies myself. (laughs) Another great spike line. Um. So Spike, of course, wants to find out where the where the gem of Amara is that, again, Buffy had given to Oz for Oz to take to L.A. to give to Angel, thereby getting us our full crossover here between mm-hmm. Harsh Light of Day and In the Dark. Spike, I, and I don't quite get it because, honestly, like Spike couldn't torture Angel. He's got to outsource this. I know. I mean, he has a reputation for torturing his victims. That was one of the first pieces of information we got about Spike. <laughs> so, again, I, there's a lot of plot convenience warehouse going on here. But I do find it interesting because Spike watches the torture and, you know, is mocking Angel for for having a soul, mm-hmm. for being in love with, with Buffy. And for being captured and tortured, all of which will happen to Spike. Exactly. Yep. In fact, he has the line, we all have an addiction, Angel. I believe yours is named Slutty the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> yeah, you're not that far off, dude. Like, yeah. you are you are half a season away. <laughs> exactly. And Marcus has that, that, I think, overwrought very Anne Rice line about it's through the pain that oh, we yeah. find the truth of who we are and yeah. become innocent like little children. <laughs> okay. All right. Take it down a notch there, Lestat. <laughs> um, but it, in a lot of this episode, I really do think is filler, but it's, it's reinforcing some, some themes that have come out earlier Angel wants forgiveness, but he doesn't think he deserves it. Um, we we see we see Cordelia and Doyle looking desperately for the ring so that they can rescue Angel from being tortured. Doyle turns into demon form, and we discover that he can smell more sharply mm-hmm. that way. Because again, <clears throat> that's what the plot needs him to do. <laughs> True. Yeah. Um, and also, apparently. When you go to Los Angeles, when you cross the city limits, they apparently give you crossbows. 
Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, are you talking about the two that Oz whips out of his mystery machine? And Cordelia has one, too. And Cordelia has one. That she has used earlier in the episode. Right, right. Um, I don't know. Angel can probably get his hands on that kind of stuff. And and Oz probably has his mystery machine van <laughs> loaded down with it, stuff. So It is the mystery machine. It's absolutely van, the mystery machine. You're you're. Totally right with that. And so he, in, and and Oz is a damn good driver too, because he whipped a 180 in that van. Did you van see that? I actually ran it back and watched it twice, and was like, no, that was, that's not right. That was pretty impressive. But um, so in in all of the the hullabaloo is they're rescuing Angel from being tortured, and what you said about um about Angel becoming beefier since he left. Yeah. The show. To be fair, in 1999, you would have tried to find as many ways to photograph him without his shirt as possible. Well, which is coming up. And if it involves hot pokers, well, so be it. You do what you do. You do what you got to do, I guess. You do what you got to do. <clears throat> um, so Marcus is the one who grabs the ring and, and runs out because, again, makes him unkillable. He can be in the sunlight. All that good stuff. He was genuinely creepy when he was on the pier, like, looking at all the tasty kids running around. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That because was, that was genuinely. Because they established that he has a thing for, for kids. Yeah. I have to say, though, when we first see Marcus with the ring on his finger, mm-hmm. and he's shading his eyes from the sunlight. Right. One of the things I love about Angel is when it missteps, it's not afraid to go big. (laughs) Okay. And they want to make it super clear that Marcus is wearing the ring. Uh Uh-huh. So (laughs) go back and watch that scene. They literally put in a twinkle effect (laughs) on the ring. I didn't notice that. There's like this bright white um, twinkle. Glint, yeah. As he drops his hand down. And, and they do that in slow-mo. Okay. Just I, to make sure. So, you know, if you're going to do anything, go big. Sure. And they do that here. <clears throat> so, okay, fighty fight fight on the pier. Angel bursts into flame and shoves him off the pier so they can fight under the pier and not burst into flame. I was going to say, for a show that is trying to be noir uh, to separate itself from Sunnydale, Sunnydale was named Sunnydale to be ironic because most of what we see takes place at night. Right. Uh, Angel uh, wants to be a noir uh, and the entire like opening titles is all dark and gritty and shadowed and everything. But we get so many daytime sequences and there are so many shots. I mean, the show eventually has to address this uh, as it goes on. The fact that Angel is constantly standing just barely out of direct sunlight. Yes. Um, he, but Angel, of course, manages to vanquish the evil Marcus, and I guess that's why we had to have Marcus instead of Spike. Right. Yeah. We needed somebody who could get dusted. Yeah. He puts on the ring, and okay. For my money, he's very pale. I love that scene, though. <laughs> no, I love. I do. I love that scene. I do. I, I love the, he's much paler than most people. He's, like he's paler than most people. <laughs> yeah. Where we get to see him actually 
in the sunlight for the first time in 200 years and he's on a he's on this golden beach mm-hmm. with these little kids making sandcastles not realizing the evil that walks beside them you know but but he does he he gets this moment but he's not perfectly happy because his soul doesn't get ripped away i i honestly can't say i'd ever th- imagined that uh but I have often imagined, I've often played with the fact that a moment, of, a moment of perfect happiness, A, doesn't mean every time he has sex with a woman. Like, of course not. The, like the show and so many of the characters joke that, oh, you can't have sex anymore because you can't have one perfect moment. Uh, and it also, you can have a, perf- a moment of perfect happiness that doesn't involve sex. So that could have been, sex. that absolutely could have been a perfectly happy moment for him that would have snapped him. Which sets up, so in as much as I have like a complaint, it's not really a complaint. Uh, it's kind of a complaint about this episode. It's the, the twisted logic they use to have him get rid of the ring at the end. Right. Because, I mean, the real reason he has to get rid of the ring is this is only the third, the only, only the third episode of a show about a vampire uh, who needs to stay in the dark. Although, as we've discussed, he doesn't stay in the dark. Um but the reason that they have him give is fine, I guess, on the face of it. That, uh, you know, um, Doyle says, well, imagine how many people you could help in the daylight. And Angel says, there are people for that. Like, those people already have... The whole world is designed for those people. I need to make sure that I'm here for the to help the people in the dark. Um, I, I mean, that seems like a valid reason, but it's really not. It's not. Um, there, I, I can think of a half a dozen reasons that make sense why he had to get rid of the ring. Um, mm-hmm. And that whole, your idea of that could have been a perfectly happy moment there in the sunshine. Yeah. That's the reason. That is the numero uno, the biggest reason why he could not keep the ring of Amara. Because Be- if Angelus yes. has that ring. Yes. We are well and truly screwed. Yes, absolutely. As a species, not not as a, as a show, because that doesn't work. But yeah, I don't buy the argument of the world's designed for the for the ones who live in the day. What? No. I mean, I it's it seems like it's sort of thematically on point for what the show is trying to set it off itself up to be. And like I said, it is only the third episode and they haven't even, they haven't even really talked about Angelus that much. So I don't know that you could have sold that to an audience that didn't know anything about Angel before this point. That's a point. But, and, and that's a good point. But to me, the reason he can't keep the ring is he can't be trusted with that. Right. Plus there's also the fact that the way he gets the ring is exactly why how somebody else could get the ring like could get the ring he just pulled the ring right off that guy's hand if he's in a fight if he's wearing the ring and somebody yanks it off his finger or cuts his hand off or whatever they get the ring angel gets dusted isn't isn't this like some some kind of unspeakably ancient ring (laughs) yeah supposedly that can be smashed by a brick right right doyle recognized doyle recognized the ring but somehow had never heard of spike before that's interesting But whatever. Uh, yeah. That, okay. So, bit of an issue. 
And then the fact that, honestly, you can destroy this incredibly powerful thing by hitting it with a brick. Right. Is just, uh, okay, okay. So it's an episode. It's an episode. It's an episode. I mean, it gave, it, us, it gave us great stuff. Oh, it did. But I don't think it makes my top ten. No. You know, it, it just does it. Even with that wonderful voiceover. Um, oh, 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 and I will say this. They do make it full circle in that Rachel gets a message back to Spike. Yeah. To, that she, quote, found faith. To Angel, you mean. Right. Uh, back to Angel, not to Spike. Ah. That would have been a whole right. other episode. Ooh, that would have been. So that's a theme we're going to see come up again and again. I think it's interesting that the 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 B plot with Angel, or uh, with Rachel, I mean, um, like the <laughs> the character of Rachel basically gets the the amount of character growth in just this one episode. That yeah. Buffy and Spike take pretty much all of season six to to pull off for themselves. It's a point. Yeah. It really is. Um so and but we'll see that. We will see B plots in some ways be more um more compelling than the main plot. Which I think Buffy did that too. There were a lot of times yeah. where the A plot was the monster of the week and the B plot is what they're, what the episode was actually about. Um, so can I, can I move on into I Fall to Pieces? Yeah, absolutely. I'll just uh, point out one thing as we say goodbye to Spike. Um, from here, he goes back to Sunnydale. Uh, and in just a couple of episodes, he gets uh, captured by the initiative in Buffy 406, Wild at Heart. And that's where that's where all of his mockery of Angel in this episode comes back to bite him in the ass. So, yeah, a lot of things in this show do come back. Yeah. Um, okay, okay. I fall to pieces. Um, written nothing like a good Patsy Cline song. Exactly, um, written by Joss Whedon and David Greenwald, directed by Vern Gillum. The fact that Whedon is at least listed as a co-writer on this one, uh-huh. I'm going to point out a few things. Okay. Because this is one of the episodes, Angel has a couple of others, particularly Billy. Yes, Billy. That really deal with men having a problem with women not doing what the men want them to do. Yeah, which... Those it's a little e on the nose. Those episodes have previously been held up, you know, held in high regard because of that, because of how... <clears throat> how powerfully they demonstrate that. And I think they still deserve to be, but there definitely is that new level, that new layer that we need to consider when we rewatch those episodes. Yeah, I, I just keep thinking of the subtext becoming text. Yes. Yep. Literally. Yep. yep, yep. Um, so, all right. In, uh, in 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 the dark, there are too many ends there. Yeah. In in the dark, Angel Investigations is not making any money. Right. 
and I fall to pieces, still not making money. <laughs> and, you know, this is becoming a bit of an issue here. Um, Doyle points out that, you know, it just doesn't fit Angel's image. <laughs> and Doyle has clearly spent a lot of time thinking about Angel's image. Yes, this is very true. Which, <laughs> who could blame him? That's yeah, a point. He has that, um, one of my favorite Doyle lines, it really is. So he has this horrible vision, which again, total plot convenience warehouse. Mm, yeah. But I get it. It works. He has this horrible vision, which, you know, makes his head just practically split open. And he asks for pen, paper, and single malt scotch. <laughs> yes. And then he has that great line as he swallows it down, going that it's not single malt. It's poly malt. Poly malt. Yep. <laughs> which I do just kind of love. <laughs> I was also forcibly reminded of how long ago 1999 was. By? Following the vision is Cordelia's trying to figure out where, because he had gotten a glimpse of a, of a business name. Yeah. Cordelia figures out where the business is using the phone book, the phone book, the LA phone book, which is, I don't know, like a foot tall, which I was going to say, I was going to make some joke at, uh, at the youth's expense and say that, you know, that thing on your phone called a phone book, uh, that's where the name comes or whatever, but they don't, it's not called a phone book. It's called your contacts. Yeah, it's contacts. But every now and again, I am, something like that jumps out at me and I'm like, what are they doing? What? There's also a scene in, uh, again, I think it's Room of the View where Angel has to make a call and he leaves the room, walks out into the hall, finds a pay phone and has to drop in a, a dime or whatever and dial the number. And I was like, oh man, how far we've come. I know, I know. Um, it's one of the one of my favorite things to point out about Hush, the the wonderful Buffy episode mm-hmm. where half of it is without speech. Right. Nowadays, people would text. <laughs> That's right, which is, I guess, what they were doing. They just but, you could only text people that were in the room with you. <laughs> right. Right. So so any anyway. Certain things in in the show definitely date it, but yeah. but that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's all right. It it was made in ninety nine. So here we have Melissa Burns. Mm-hmm. Love the name. I love it when a verb is your last name. <laughs> and Ronald Meltzer. Burns and Meltzer. She should have set him on fire at the end of the episode. <laughs> exactly. Um. Meltzer, and, played by Andy Umberger, we need to point out. Oh. One of the, one of the hat tricks. I, I think there's more than he's one. He's a now. hat trick. He's one of the hat tricks that's been in all three, at the time, all three of the, the Whedon shows, Buffy, Angel, and then he went on to Firefly. Holy cow. I yeah. love it when you point those things out. <laughs> he's also, uh, he also, oh man, I think I wrote this down. He did something else. Oh, he was in a, he went on to an X-Files episode, I know. There was a later episode, a later season episode where there was like an auditor, an FBI auditor that was auditing uh, Mulder and Scully's casework or whatever. That was Andy He looks like an auditor. Yeah, he does. Yeah. 
Anyways. He does. Um, but anyway, Melissa is clearly just a really sweet girl. We never really know what she does. She she works in, works a, in an office. office. She's in an office. That's it. Uh, <laughs> an office and there are files. <laughs> but, but, you know, she she is first seen in the office and she's gotten a birthday cake for a co-worker and, you know, a plant. And it, it's clear that she's she's being presented as just being a nice girl who has a normal life. So we're going to screw that up. Of course. Yep. Um, we also see her taking pills in the bathroom. Yeah, and I'm glad they called out the number of, well, they didn't really call it out. They just mentioned it. But when she was popping those pills, I was like, whatever those are, do you need to take three at a time? Do you need to I mean, shotgun three big yellow pills in the bathroom at work? Yeah, unless it's ibuprofen, right. I'm going to go with no. Right. Um. And she gets this fantastic flower arrangement. Mm -hmm. Remember, she's given the birthday girl a, a I mean, a, ni a nice plant yep. for the desk, maybe. But this is like this huge, elaborate lily and orchid flower arrangement with a card that if I got it from my husband would <laughs> freak me out. <laughs> what Do you remember what it said? I do. All my undying love, Ronald. Well, I mean, if you got, to be fair, if any of us got that card from your husband, Ensley, and he signed it Ronald, it would freak us all out. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, it would, in fact, freak, freak me out for him to sign it Ronald. That's true. But I don't know. There's something about all my undying love. I mean, mm -hmm. that's like Joe DiMaggio to Marilyn Monroe stuff. <laughs> that, something about that's just not... Nah. Um, and she freaks out and takes off. And then we see her the next day withdrawing money from an ATM because it's 1999. Of course, yeah. And we learn that because Ronald shows up and we learn that he changed her PIN number. Yeah, which nitpick here, but okay. <laughs> it's one of those necessary plot magics that we'll just let slide, That's I guess. True. Um. Because I, I don't know how he would have been able to do that. Although we learn he is a doctor and very well respected and all the rest of it. I'm still not too sure he could have changed. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, but he, he continues with some of the creepy talk about, you know, I take commitment very seriously. I'll see you tonight. And we've learned they had one date. Mm -hmm. One. And he looks like an auditor. <laughs> You know, this is not a couple who you naturally would pair together. I mean, kudos. To... He seems considerably older than her. He does. Yeah. I don't know what their actual ages were. I didn't look that up. But yes, he seems, it definitely seems, there is definitely a power inequality between the two that you can just sense. And Andy Umberger plays it. Like, he doesn't do anything overtly gross. I mean, aside from the fact that he apparently changed her her pin number without uh telling her through oh, some to the date to the date of their date right yeah so i mean yeah there are those overtly creepy things but for the most part he he doesn't i don't know he he managed to manages to be subtly super creepy like but there's just yeah, a vibe he, there's a vibe he gives off that is and 
it is so clear that Melissa is scared. Terrified, yeah. Because this is just not normal. Mm -hmm. And he, she's really clear about wanting him to go away and leave her alone. So, you know, something, something is not, is not right here. And, you know, she, Angel shows up in a parking garage. That was, that was very, very Angel of him. Which, you know, okay, you're approaching someone who's already freaked out, showing up dressed all in black in the gloom of a parking garage, knowing things about them is probably not the best way to do it. She took that very well, I must say. I would not have handled that nearly as well as she did. How many times do you figure Angel got maced? <laughs> there should be a, there should be a series of outtakes where it's just <laughs> every woman he's approached and surprised and they've turned around and maced him. Um, and I, I do think it's great that though that when she calls and says, you know, that she's going to come in, that Angel's reaction is that he needs to change his clothes <laughs> so that he's not head to toe in black. Right. And he apparently owns a white sweater. Who knew? He uh, he borrowed it from somebody. I'm sure he yeah. didn't own that. Um, okay, so it, you probably caught this on your on your rewatch, but I have like a big star bite in my notes as Angel is explaining to Cordelia and therefore to us how creepy this is and that there seems to be some sort of supernatural aspect to the spying. Uh-huh. She says, okay, flesh, anytime you want to stop crawling, it's okay with me. Yeah. That was a very, that was a very early Buffy sort of line. But given what we're going to learn about Ronald, Oh, flesh crawling. Yeah. 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 It's, it's even more. Ah. Did you know, this is the thing I just found out researching yeah. for this episode that uh, Christopher Hart, the actor who is credited as Meltzer's, I think he's credited as hands performer or something, but it's Meltzer's yeah. severed hands. Uh, he played thing in the Adams family yes. films. Cause I did make a note about th- that. It, the movement even looked like, but yeah. I didn't, I didn't check it. It was actually the same. <laughs> they hired the same hands. That's kind of awesome. It is pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome. Um, this episode also gives us I mean, the... really, don't you think that that deserves a hand? Yes. Nice. <laughs> um, this episode gives us our first look at the what will become the Hyperion Hotel. Nice. Because the place that she's staying... The place is that he's fine is the Hyperion oh, Hotel. And when the when the police officer runs in, he's actually they actually film him running into the actual real entrance and courtyard of that building, which later yeah. on they're gonna turn into a set so they don't have to run into the actual building anymore. But nice. So I thought nice. that was that was pretty cool. Apparently it's the I'm sure diehard fans know this, but this is the kind of information I have to look up. Los Altos Hotel and Apartments, 4121 Wilshire, Wilshire Boulevard. Huh. It's the location so of add the... It, add it to your tour. Add it to your tour, yeah. Um, um, so you mentioned, you talked about the angel 
feeling like there must be something supernatural about all this. I kind of want to point out because I feel like the show will do this a number of times over its run that, um, as far as we know, there actually isn't anything supernatural about, or not, not in the sense of the usual, like this, this is not a guy who has gained his abilities by worshiping a demon or from the right. hell mouth or by casting a spell or finding a magical mask or whatever. Right. Um, this is a guy who apparently just studied yoga and meditates or whatever. And, uh, and it's fascinating that because you had mentioned X-Files, it's fascinating that here Angel is Mulder. Right. You know, always looking for it to be something supernatural. And Cordelia is Scully. Right. Yeah. Because Cordelia is like, you know, it could be a hidden camera. <laughs> right. Exactly. And of course, they both turn out to be wrong. Yeah. Um, I just I, I wonder. I don't know. I, I will probably call this out. Uh, as we make our way through Angel the series, anytime that I can point out um, a non-supernaturally powered bad guy, because I know, like, Gwen, eventually, I don't remember if we ever get an explanation for where her electrical powers come from. But I don't I, think we do. I don't think that it's implied that she, you know, worships the devil or... <laughs> or no. Yeah. Um so I just think it's interesting that uh, Angel, Joss's Batman riff, uh, starts introducing superheroes without without like demonic superpowers or whatever. I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and point out all of the the bad guys that we face that um, are not the typical demons or monsters from hell or whatever. It's a good so. one. It's it's a good point. Um. And going back to the whole detective and film noir thing, they start to piece all this together just by doing legwork. Mm -hmm. You know, Cordelia poses as a reporter and gets some information about the guy. Um, Angel finds a book called Anything is Possible. Bad title, but okay. <laughs> in the doctor's office. Seriously, you'd leave it in the office? <laughs> You'd leave it in the office. So they, they do. They they start to figure it all out. And it's creepy. But as you point out, it's not supernatural. But it's really creepy. It's creepy and kind of gross. When his because eyeball is he, just floating he around. He apparently has figured out how to fall to pieces. Yeah. You know, we... we Honestly, I think the eye is creepier than the hands. The, yeah, no, the eye is absolutely the creepiest thing about it. Um, I mean, the hands, although well done by Christopher Hart, good job thing. Um, <laughs> I just always, even watching the silly Adams Family movies, I always look at the hand walking across the table and I'm like, that's just silly. That's just that's just goofy. It's to yeah. me, it's not menacing. It is menacing in this in the scene when she's in bed, when she's asleep in bed. That's menacing. And the hands get into the bed with her and go underneath the covers. And you're like, where, wh what are we doing here? <laughs> Do you not know? <laughs> well, I mean, I've seen pictures, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but it is. And it, it's, it's the fact that Melissa is sleeping mm -hmm. in her own bed, in her own apartment where you should feel, you know, your, your home is your castle where you should feel safe and secure. Not only does he breach that, 
but he is violating her. Oh, yeah. Yep. Now, whether or not it, it goes, because Angel tends to not go all the way into gross SVU territory, but, um, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a violation of her space, of her privacy, and honestly, of her body. And it is just wrong. Yep. Wrong. <laughs> On a number of levels. So I I like the fact that the that the bad guy is defeated. I mean, technically, Angel's the one that knocks his head off. Uh, but like he's what really defeats him is her finally standing up for herself and and like yelling at him or whatever. She like something we're going to see in the next episode too. Yes. Yes. Uh, she unmans him or whatever. And, uh, he can't deal with that. He, he is incapable of having that sort of pushback or whatever, losing that sense of power. So you were saying that when you saw the hand, even in Adam's family, just like run across the table. Uh Okay. So the fight where Angel is fighting disembodied hands and teeth. And the teeth. The teeth thing was maybe a bridge too far. A bridge too far? Yeah, see what I did like, there? Like a, di- oh, yes. a dental bridge. Yeah. Oh, that's very good. I'm so funny. Um, I will point out one thing, though. When, j- just before we get to the big fighty fight scene, back at Angel's office... Uh, Melissa is basically passed out because they, they, what spiked her tea with whiskey. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, you know, so she's asleep in, in, uh, in the bed and they start hearing Cordelia and Doyle start hearing noise. And again, this is, I'm a Doyle fan. So I like this. There's this great bit where they're kind of inching toward whatever the noise is. Doyle makes sure to get in front of Cordelia. Mm-hmm. He doesn't take his eyes off of what's in front of him, where he figures the threat is, as he takes weapons off the wall and hands one back to her. Right. Yeah. No, I I, uh, I loved the fact that that whole thing, first of all, it played very real. Um, I, I thought his performance of someone who was creeped out, but you know, not wanting to take his eyes off that shadow over there. I thought that was very cool. I also like the fact that they didn't have to coordinate. They just both knew what they were doing and like talking to each other from different rooms as they were sort of getting into position. Yeah, it was really cool. It was, and I do, I think it was well done. <laughs> oh, there's a dog butt on the camera. Yes. Um, <laughs> She has just curled up on the chaise now nice. where she doesn't belong, but she's so cute. Oh, how do I know? There's nothing I can do about that. No. Um, so we, we go from that great scene to Melissa standing up and yelling at him. Angel shows up to save the day and is in having to fight disembodied hands. <laughs> oh, um, and we do learn that Angel Investigations has really bad coffee. Very bad coffee. Very bad coffee. I think this is also the first time that we hear the uh, Angel Investigations, we help the hopeless. 
we help the hopeless. I think it is. I think this is the first time we hear that. And I, I've always loved that tagline. Yeah. Um, so uh, at the end of all of this, Melissa pays. Right. I, you know, it's, I, I love that whole thing because it is the kind of discussion that we as fans can, and I'm sure have ad nauseum, uh, debate over like what, what is the actual real proper etiquette here? Because I could, I feel both sides of the argument. Yeah. It's kind of weird to help people and then ask them to pay for it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then Doyle, who I can never quite tell if he's just saying this to sort of help Cordy along or if he's come to this decision himself. But he does make a valid point of, you know, it's a lot better for people. It helps people heal and move on if they feel like they have paid for a service instead of just being rescued by some stranger out of the dark. And to be fair, we never see Melissa again. Right. And I like that. Well, she says, I hope I never see you again. I hope I never see you again. And then we have that lovely banter between Cordelia and Doyle at the end. We need clients. Have a vision. <laughs> yep. Oh, Cordy, if only you knew what you were asking. I know. I know. So I, it, it's funny because I think the three episodes we're talking about, I think they get stronger as you go. Yes. I think In the Dark has some fun bits, but it's it's filler. I think I Fall to Pieces has some neat ideas, but it, it also has some real, again, the disembodied hands. It, the evil hands! <laughs> evil They're hands. evil hands! Bad zombie arm. Bad zombie arm. Um, it's, a, it's a standout just for its creep factor. Oh, yeah. And it is, it, it is sincerely creepy. And, you know, we're, we're playing with this idea of men having power over women. Right. Now. And then we get into Room with a View. Room with a View. So Room with a View, written by David Greenwalt and Jane Espenson, the incomparable Jane Espenson, uh, and directed by Scott McGinnis. Um. And introducing or identifying possibly the last face that we see in the opening credits that we didn't know I think who it was. It is. Um, of course, turns out to be Phantom, Phantom Dennis. Dennis. Phantom Dennis. The Phantom Dennis. <laughs> oh, well, that was very I, bad. I think I think I've read that the it may be apocryphal. But uh, I thought I read somewhere that that was intentional, that they came up with it. Maybe Jane. I think maybe Jane had said that. Uh, that that has Espenson written all over it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that they were trying to riff off the whole Phantom Menace thing. But So, well, and, and I know Room with a View is how things are designated in apartment ads. Mm -hmm. But it also, I, I've spent way too much time trying to make it fit into the E.M. Forster novel. <laughs> okay any success Which, actually yeah all right because a lot of uh okay the one of the one of there's several but one of the big themes in room with a view is the uh the the female lead going against 
the dictates of society in order to be happy and okay. having to stand up to um, a lot of social approbation in order to do that. And this episode is Cordy centric. Yes. Doing that. Um, aside from that, I'm probably reaching too far. <laughs> I, I, uh, well, once again, for the millionth time, admit my ignorance and say I've never read the novel. I've seen the film, but it's that was but that was a long ass time ago, and don't, I don't oh, remember yeah. I don't remember a damn thing about it. But you know, the whole thing is Lucy having to stand up, and um, even though it's not, it goes against everything, right? When she does, so. Cordy's just not having a good time in L.A. It has not worked out. No, I uh, I have a certain set of phobias. I, I have a, a minor package deal, I guess, of phobias. And one of those, we won't go into details here about where this phobia formed, but uh, I don't like cockroaches. Uh, it's it. Does it, anyone? It takes a month. You would be surprised. Oh, God, I would. I have a zoo-related story I could tell you at another time. Uh, anyways, I have I have a major, like, I need therapy for uh, issue with <laughs> cockroaches. And so I'd forgotten or blacked out intentionally the fact that the final thing that pushes her out of her apartment was all the all the bugs. And I was like, I actually, I literally hit pause and I was like, okay, I need a moment. <laughs> I need to. Well, I need to run away and find a new place to live, too. Oh, and it's it's so effective because it's Cordelia. Mm -hmm. You know, the the girl who had hairspray that was forty dollars a can. Right. You know, back in Sunnydale. And she's been reduced to, you know, her parents lost their money. She's trying everything for Cordy always came really easily until Buffy came into town mm -hmm. and she discovered the hell mouth and everything else. So her apartment, you know, the angel investigations is not making money. She's not getting all uh, jobs from auditions. That trash bag audition. Oh my God. That trash bag audition. I just, ah. Uh, I think I have a, I think I know why you didn't get the job there, Cordy. Exactly. <laughs> and then this apartment is just from hell. Yep. I mean, the lights don't work. The walls aren't painted. The muddy water. The muddy water and there there roaches everywhere. Mm. I'm I'm and literally looking around me right now. I I know. It's, <laughs> I, I know. I mean, they they do a great job of shooting that to make it so clear just how bad it is you were you were right when she's over at doyle's place doyle's place is messy but it also has light that's yeah yep he had clothes um, everywhere but he didn't have like food and roaches on the floor and yeah no and you know doyle owes money all over town but apparently enough of his deals work that he has food in the refrigerator. Right. I like that. Uh, I like that she did attempt to call Doyle first. Yeah, I did too. Um, and of course, 
the because she can't get in touch with him because he's got his own stuff going on. Um, it leads to the hilarious bit of her uh-huh. forcing herself uh, into Angel's apartment or Angel's whatever basement and um, becoming the first of more than one girls to get peanut butter in Angel's bed. <laughs> um I know of at least one more time that that happens, and I have a sense that it happens like it becomes a running joke. But maybe I'm imagining that. But okay. um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, again, right. again, right. add that to the bingo card. And I think it's fantastic that she does show up over there, and and yeah, she does call Doyle first, which is raises some interesting questions. Mm-hmm. And then you know she goes over to Angels. With Louis Vuitton luggage. And a lot of it. A lot of it. She took time to pack. She took time to pack. And I don't know. I think it was pretty clear she wasn't going to go back. Right. To that horrible apartment. Right. Because, I mean, she packed her trophies. This is That's true. That's true. My first question really was, why hasn't she hawked that luggage? It means everything to her. I don't know. I can't. It's a connection back to her earlier life. Yeah. So, no, she's not going to. She's No, no, she's not going to sell it. I mean, I thought that was a nice bit. And and that that eventually becomes, I mean, metaphorically speaking, that eventually becomes the line she refuses to cross. Like when she. So when Doyle does find her the new apartment, which is ge- legitimately a nice apartment. Oh, yeah. And I do question how she's, how she's affording it. Um, but when, you know, she discovers that the apartment's haunted, she is not going to give up because, you know, that's the line. This far, no further, whatever. Like, she, well, she will it, not let go of who she thinks she is. She is not going back to that crap apartment. She is not going back to being that person. Yeah. And one of my favorite lines in any Angel episode, and that is saying a lot. I think maybe I know what this is. And again, it's Jane Espenson. It has to be. It's haunted. It's rent controlled. (laughs) That's not what I thought it was, but that is a great line. That is a great line. I love that exchange. I love love the line um, when... Angel and Doyle come over and they see, you know, how bad it is. And Angel's trying to, they're trying to get her to leave the apartment. Mm -hmm. And Angel's like, it's, you know, uh, man, I wish I'd written down this quote so I could get it exact. But basically he says, you know, um, you're more than just this apartment or whatever. And she says, she says, why, or what am I? Or whatever. Like she, she legitimately, it's the first sort of heartbreaking moment of the episode where you get a sense that she feels uh, she questions her value. She's starting just a little bit to lose her courty confidence and question who she is. I mean, she also talks in this episode about how she feels like she's being punished for who she used to be. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that we will see in angel again and again and again is even if you want redemption and even if you're willing to work for it, it's not a straight line. 
Right. Because, I mean, we'll see her backslide. We'll she, see that in this episode. I was going to say, kind of even a little bit in this episode. Oh, yeah. Um, and apparently something with Marcus playing classical music rubbed off. Because when Cordy shows up over at Angel's place, Ode to Joy is playing. <laughs> that apparently is his go-to shower music. Uh, well, we didn't even I'm talk. We didn't even talk about the gratuitous uh, naked angel moment there. I don't think that's gratuitous at all. <laughs> of course not. No, <laughs> um, it was. It was funny. It was funny. I think there's a very clear purpose for it. <laughs> yeah, gratuity. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, and you mentioned that the reason Doyle hadn't answered the call yes. was because he was dealing with his own stuff. And mm -hmm. this is where the wheels are starting to come off of things there. Mm -hmm. Doyle's been pretty good at getting enough money to cover his worst debts. Right. But that's starting to, to come apart now. And, you know, we see his hand has been smashed in the in the dresser drawer. Mm -hmm. And Angel sees it, too, and really wants to know what is going on. And that starts the whole, I'll solve your problem, but you have to solve mine. Find her a place to live. Yep. And I think it's fascinating that, because, again, filmed in 99, at first, of course, Cordy doesn't want help from a guy I know. Right. So... They're, they're going through these apartments with the classifieds. I, I feel like the actual monster of the week in this episode is uh, the search for an L.A. apartment. Because <laughs> um, I, I lived, I, I was born in L.A. I was born in West Covina, but I, I, I lived in L.A. in my very, very early youth. So I don't remember. And we lived in a house. So I. I don't have any personal history with this, but I'm aware of the fact that housing in L.A. is pretty hard to come by and expensive. Well, so in the ones she's finding in a, in the classifieds are are just awful. Yeah. Different kinds of awful. <laughs> yes, she from you know the the Roach Motel. Yeah, uh, one of her options is some sort of cultist compound or something i don't know what that was but uh yeah her with the communal peeing and all that well, stuff and then the other has that really just skanky guy who lives across the hall so sleep sleep well sleep comfortably knowing that i am the only person in the world that has the key the other key to this door yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> so you know she fi she finally says fine call your guy and uh -huh. it is a perfect apartment it's big it's sunlit it's clean it's even even cozy and it's affordable what what's wrong with it yeah exactly and the realtor even says you know i don't even know how you heard about it because they haven't even advertised it yet and then of course we see the spooky face push out from the wall it's always you know it's always a gimmick when mo when movies and tv shows do that but i like it oh, <laughs> I, I always like it it's it's kind of like the goofy hand running across the table it's charming in its own way but of course nothing can be that perfect 
<laughs> nope. So, you know, the radio comes on, the doors, or the drawers, I think, open and shut, and then you hear these whispered threats. Cordy is not in a good place. No, but I love the fact that she... Uh, She's when she wakes up to all of this, she's obviously, you know, terrified, but she sticks it out. She does. Uh, to the point where, you know, we cut to the morning and she's still sitting, obviously terrified, huddled on her bed, which is floating like six feet in the air or whatever. Um, and when the bed drops down and the haunting is over, she doesn't run out of the apartment. She's like, okay good it's a it's a new day so whatever like you know i'm from sunnydale i can get through this it's not a big deal so there are a couple of casper jokes yes because not a friendly ghost and all that and this is where we get to the point where cordy starts talking to angel about feeling like she's being punished right And that she's being punished for being so awful in high school. Yes. She's been dodging phone calls from one of the cordettes. Just just as a reminder of her past, yeah. Exactly. Um, But she is Cordelia. So what that means is that when Angel thinks she's referring to searching for redemption, and that's how they're alike... She points out, no, 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 it's because of that mansion you used to have. Yes. One step forward, half a step back. Yep, yep. Um, And Doyle is echoing this a little bit because, you know, Angel wants to have a serious talk with him about why are you living like this? Mm -hmm. You know, what's your backstory? And Doyle just very politely says, you know, that he's not going to talk about it. Again... I don't think they plan to get rid of the character. Right. They're setting too much stuff up. Well, again, knowing where it goes, it does not last long enough for me. I wish he had way longer to follow through on these storylines on the series. But knowing where it goes, I can't help but read lines like when... Oh, what the hell was his name? Griff? I think Griff was the... the leg breaker or whatever that oh, came to yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when oh, wow. he's talking to angel and he says, you know, I, did I see that right? Are you a vampire? Why are you, why do you care about some little demon half breed? And he says it with contempt in his voice. And that just, be, because I know what that means and where that story is leading us and why Doyle is so uncomfortable to talk about it with angel. Yeah. Um, you know, that seems intentional to me. That seems like they knew what kind of where they were going. Uh, I really but wish I they'd had more they, time to play it out. Yeah, I do think they truncated the whole storyline, mm-hmm. though. Yeah. It, whether it is through... And I, I, I'll i be honest, I, knowing what I know, I think probably there was, quote, conflict on the set. And I think the conflict was probably that uh, Quinn's substance abuse was, was ramping up again. Mm-hmm. Because he he had that as a habit all all of his professional life. Yeah. Well, I I've always and I talked about this many times in in the Buffy episodes. I've always wanted the show to 
to tackle notions of demonic racism or i don't even know know what to call it but um like bigotry and that kind of stuff and this is a theme that is being hinted at right here and it gets directly addressed for the briefest of times with doyle but then this series does it again over its run i yeah it's it's a that's a theme that I really love and I always wanted Buffy to tackle. I I think it did a few times, but I always wanted Buffy to tackle that more. And I'm glad that Angel takes that theme and runs with it. Um, Oh yeah. And I mean, we'll get to things like, are you now or have you ever been? Yeah. Yeah. That does hit my top 10. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I have occasionally wondered, and this is, sheer speculation with no background for it okay okay but i have occasionally wondered if it was experiences on season one of angel that somehow or another fed into some storylines on season six of buffy is this speculation about glenn quinn yeah because i i i think i i do have I mean, because for Quinn, this show was not as big break. That was Roseanne. Right. But I mean, this was this was a big deal. I don't think he did anything after this. I could be wrong. I could look up he, his IMDb. He but did. It, um, oh, he did? He, okay. He, he didn't do anything steady. He had the occasional project. Okay. All right. But that was it. Because I actually remember seeing some like made-for-TV movie with him. In a one or a two. Okay. But for all I know, that had been made earlier and just gotten stuck in the pipeline, too. I don't know. Yeah. But I have occasionally wondered if it was this experience and Whedon in particular took some of that and wove it into some of the magic as addiction storylines in six. Yeah, I'm. it could I be. I don't know. It could be. I mean, that also fulfilled some other story requirements in season six, but I have occasionally wondered that. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that somebody listening to us right now has a better understanding of what was going on behind the scenes. If so, please feel free uh, to write in uh, conswithdead at gmail.com and let us know. I would love to know more about that. Um, so at any rate, at any rate, getting back to the to the episode itself, we find out that this beautiful building was built by a woman by the by the name of Maud Pearson. It's a great name. It is a great name. But she died of natural causes, so it can't be her. I, I love how the the Buffyverse plays so fast and loose with sort of the the quote-unquote established supernatural rules and yet this episode is trying to say well it can't be a can't be a ghost because ghosts are formed from like tragic deaths or murders or whatever and i'm like we've seen like there are so many supernatural rules that we take for granted that this show has completely thrown out the window so yeah so, of course, we, we bring in Kate Lockley here, who can do all kinds of magic, not literally, in terms of records. 
And that's when they just, that's when apparently if you simply put in the word suicide. Right. Right. You, you get all of these records. I, the, and we discovered that there have been a lot of suicides in that apartment. The internet, the 90s internet in the Buffyverse is the most magical thing about the shows. <laughs> okay. That is, in fact, true. Um, and in the previous episode, we get that wonderful tagline of, we help the hopeless. Oh, yes. Yes. And here we get Doyle <laughs> snatching up the phone just to say, and he can't remember the line. We hope you're helpless. <laughs> so good. I want so I want a shirt that says that. <laughs> so now we're into the actual meat of this episode. It it does feel like there's a lot of setup. Mm -hmm. And then we get into the meat and we discover, but wait, it is mom ghost or little old grandma ghost or whoever who is mean. Very, very mean. She, they certainly don't set her up and she, she doesn't read in any overt way as like a Southern mom. But now that I live here in the South and I've witnessed firsthand the type of, uh, the, the horrible cliches of Southern mothers I've managed to see, that's how it reads to me. Like that particular brand of, uh, of mental war games or whatever yeah. that she's playing. It's for your own good, dear. Right. And the way she talks to Cordelia makes me cringe. Yeah. It is brilliantly played. Charisma Carpenter. I mean, obviously needs way more credit than she ever got, but she is a phenomenal actress. And uh, I, I love how she portrays the, the crumbling ego or whatever. Like she is really hit hard by the things that, and there could be some ghost magic involved too, but she's really hit hard by the words that uh, ghost mod. Yeah. And it's, says. it's all of this, you know, why would anyone care about you? Everyone will be glad that you're dead. I mean, these terrible, terrible things. And it is just getting right in between the chinks in Cordelia's armor. Mm -hmm. And she is a mess. She's crying. She's weak. She's hysterical. Um, and Angel and Doyle rush over there to do a cleansing spell, which again... Doyle was able to get the ingredients for. Just like that. Just like that. He knows a guy in Chinatown. He knows a guy. But they need Cordy to complete the spell, and she is just a wreck. And, you know, a Angel is even like, damn it, you're Cordelia Chase. <laughs> you're the most, and I don't remember what he calls her, the most annoying person or something like that. Something like that. He's really trying to build her up by telling her what an <laughs> awful person she is. But, um, they're trying to hustle it because, you know, things are flying all over the place and it's getting dangerous in there. They're trying to leave and there are demons at the door <laughs> yeah. who, of course, don't need an invitation to come in. Oh, I do want to talk about that. I love yeah. I loved that. Go scene. for it. I love that scene when she first 
when when Angel and Doyle first come to the new apartment and Angel is standing outside for a minute, she's like, oh, of course you can't come in. And he just walks in and shuts the door. She's like, wait a minute. What's going on? He's like, you said if I if you ever find a place, I'm welcome anytime. She's like, that doesn't count. How does that count? Um, I I love that. That's one of the instances of the show sort of, again, tweaking those rules that it sets up. Yeah. But I actually loved it. And I think the show does that. I, I think we see that kind of thing again later in the series. But anyways, I, I loved that little moment. Well, and I think it's another way that they're trying to distinguish themselves from Buffy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's a little hazardous because, you know, again, they wanted to have crossovers. and Right. Ah, but yeah, I, I love that. And, and they show up with a plant. <laughs> a cactus. A little cactus. A tiny little cactus. Perfect. I, I just, I kept thinking about the fact that Melissa had dropped off a plant. Right. A beautiful plant. And so, I, the, the little cactus thing is funny, not only because you're like a angel, like you're... <laughs> Your first thought is, oh, that is so pathetic, Angel. You don't know. You have no idea what you're doing, do you? But on the other hand, maybe he does, because what kind of plant is Cordelia Chase going to keep alive in her apartment? Cactus. Yeah. She's not she, Something she only has to remember to water every three months. Right. Yeah. But it is a nice gesture. It's the thought that it, counts. It is the thought that counts. Um, if only the poltergeist had thrown it into someone's face at some point, that would have been even better. Oh, that would have been good. If Angel was mid-fight and there was just a cactus stuck to his forehead. <laughs> so, so, of course, the demons and Angel and Doyle are fighting, 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 fighting. The ghost whisks Cordy off into the bedroom and slams the door shut and continues trying to get her to hang herself. So... We know where all the suicides came from. Yep. And Cordelia is, again, just broken. I, the line that, that I actually wrote down was, because she apparently is confusing Cordelia with her son's girlfriend. Yeah. And has that line about he could smell the stench of poverty and failure on you. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Cordelia is just... A mess. An absolute mess. And then the ghost overplays her hand. <laughs> Hoisted by her own petard. Exactly. You better be, because Cordelia apologizes, which I just remember Whedon writing about how much he hated torture porn. Mm-hmm. Because it always has the woman apologizing mm-hmm. for something. And, you know, here Cordelia is going, I'm sorry, I'll leave, I'm sorry. And the, uh, our monster ghost says, you know, you better be sorry, you stupid little bitch. And that just does it. Yeah. I, I love the fact that under other circumstances, this might play out as, oh, you crossed a line. How dare you call me a bitch? But in this case, that's not really what's going on. No. It's Cordelia being like, oh, yeah, I am a bitch. You're right. Thank you for reminding me. And Jane Espenson, who writes some of the best stuff ever, I'm not a sniveling little whiny cry buffy. <laughs> yes. And she stands up, literally. Yep. And 
she vanquishes the ghost with anger and with strength. But then explain to me what happens with her eyes. Uh, so I read that. I've always read that as uh, uh, Dennis, Phantom Dennis, uh, possesses her. Because clearly, because she comes back, like when, when Cordelia stands up to her and says, get out of my house or whatever, she like blasts phantom Maud back through the door and it looks like she's disappeared and you're like oh well cordelia just cleansed the place herself and then you find out that Maud is still there cordelia herself might be free now from this haunting but Maud is still there because what because that's not what's going to cleanse the house phantom dennis needs to get his thing or whatever so i took that as phantom dennis is like he sees his opportunity and he he jumps into cordelia uh, long enough to free him or whatever. I mean, and it, I, here's the thing: I think you're right, uh-huh. but I think that's weak. You think it's weak that I do. that Phantom Dennis had to be the one to finally finish her off, and that he had to do it by possessing Cordelia, who had just stood up for herself. It is, you know, I, yeah. I find it problematic. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I guess I agree. Hearing you say uh, that, I, I think I but, agree. But there I were there were better ways the they could have done that. Yeah. I think your explanation is the intention, but I do. I think I think it, it almost is undoing what Cordy had just done. Yeah, there were other ways they could have done that. They could have had the wall get damaged in the fight, or they could have just had Phantom Dennis appear and destroy his mother and then they would have been like well wait a minute what's behind this wall and they could have found his body then Uh, yeah it didn't need to be even if we had just seen the face dennis's face press up against the plaster again Mm -hmm. and cordy's like what the hell and starts smashing the plaster right that would have worked for me a little better um but I i don't think cordelia gains power by giving up her agency and that part bugs me a little. Fair. That's fair. I hadn't thought of that before, but yeah, I agree with you now. So I- anyway, I-, I do love the scene with the lamp as she's just pounding the crap out of the wall. <laughs> it's That's a pretty strong lamp. It looks pretty fragile, <laughs> but she knocks a brick wall down. But it's. You know, I guess you... Maude was not a professional bricklayer, so it probably wasn't very strong. And, you know, it's very, very Edgar Allan Poe. Absolutely. Yes. I can't believe that entire episode, there was not one even casual reference to the cask of Amontillado. Mm -hmm. That seems, that's a missed opportunity. Like Doyle should have had that book, a book of Poe on his (laughs) bookshelf or something. Oh, that would have been great. And I I have to admit, I read that story originally in like ninth grade and it's still terrifying. It's one of my favorites. I love that. Yeah. So uh, then there's that great line. We see Doyle putting new locks on his place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Angel's there. And it's the whole thing about how Doyle's just not going to tell his story yet. And he has that great line of the past. Don't let go. Does she? Right. Yeah. And makes it feminine. Mm -hmm. And Angel agrees and says, no, she, no, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. So. 
And it, but okay, so we've seen this huge growth with Cordelia. But then the last scene, she's in this fantastic apartment with this great view, mm-hmm. this huge window with this great view over LA, talking with Aura, who she's been dodging the calls. Yep. And it is that great line of, I have a roommate, but I never see him. Yeah. Yuck, yuck, yuck. But yeah, Cordy's backsliding a little she bit here. Backslides just a little bit by talking about other girls in Sunnydale not having any fashion sense or whatever. Yeah, because yeah. she's talking trash. Yep. And it is more of a, she has worth now because she has this great place. Yes. Yeah, this is not, Cordelia has not been redeemed. <laughs> this is still, no. this is still just a step on the journey. But it's a big one. It is a big one. It was a good episode. I'll agree with you. Um, so in the Buffy discussions, I would frequently mention uh, the sort of spinoffs or sequels that I wish we could have gotten. Like there was always the perennial favorite of mine are the Ripper series oh. that should have been, uh, and yes. the the Spike and Faith spinoff that should have yes. been. But there there were mul- those were real possibilities. There were multiple other ones that I just made up, and I was like, I wish this character had gotten their own show. So kicking off that pattern on Angel, I will say my first imagined uh, Angel spinoff that I miss that I regret we never got: The Adventures of Phantom Dennis, Guardian Spirit. I love it. I wish I wish Phantom Dennis had gotten his own show. I love that. Because Phantom Dennis sticks around for a while. Uh, like, she has that apartment for a long time. She does. I don't remember when she loses it. She might have it all the way through, like, her entire run on the show. But um, I, I think we get to a point where we just don't see her in the apartment. Yeah, yeah. But, I so help me, I think she... Yeah. I mean, I know into the Hyperion. Right. I know we see Phantom Dennis a handful of times from from here on. But uh, yeah, I would love I'm I'm imagining a spinoff where, uh, I don't know, other people move into the apartment. And like every the monster of the week uh, is just the new people that move into the apartment. And Phantom Dennis secretly helps them solve their problems or whatever. I love this. So, ah. Another show that we'll never get. I know. Unless you write so it for sad, us, Dale. Really. You can write it for us. I don't know about that. <laughs> but I do like Phantom Dennis Guardian Spirit. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Um, so is there anything else on this? Um, oh, Cordelia had the line, how come Patrick Swayze's never dead when you need him? Too oh, so- I know. Too soon, oh, Cordy. Too soon. But at the time. <laughs> I know. I know. At the time, he wasn't, but man um but yeah there there are certain lines like that that jump out because again things have changed so much mm -hmm. i mean it's more than 20 years ago uh oh the cordettes angels like when he's explaining what the cordettes were to doyle he's like it was like the soviet secret police if they cared about shoes they cared about shoes (sighs) and again that has got to be an espenson line of course of course too good um so yeah i guess i should probably i don't know how much credit i really need to continue giving to my my absent because he gave up before the show ever started co-host arlo 
Um, he's the one that when this podcast was being created, he's the one that broke down the episodes. Like he set out the list of what we would talk about in each episode. So parent, like matching these three episodes together for one conversation, that was his doing. Um, it might've just been convenience, but every once in a while I'm impressed with how well, like I'll go into an episode thinking, Oh, these three are, we'll just, these are just filler episodes. They're random. They're just going together. Cause the next episode is a big one. Um, but every yeah. once in a while I'm like, no, these actually, this, these actually kind of all fit together. And I yeah. sort of feel that way with these three. Yeah, I do too. As I said earlier, I hadn't watched these in ages and ages and they, they do, um, they, they build. Yeah. I mean, and I actually think room with a view is one of the, it's a strong episode. It is a strong episode. Um, and it's the, it's the fifth episode in the season. And I'm trying to remember, like, I always, I feel like you always need to cut the first season of a show, certainly the first half of the first season, but I always give it a show, a new show, a season to really figure out what it is. And, uh, sometimes shows need that full season to figure out what they are. And I feel like Angel is finding itself pretty quickly. I do too. It, it's I know you've talked about when you finish with Angel, you might continue on mm -hmm. and say, get into Firefly. Hopefully. Yeah. It's one of the things that makes, and there are a number, but one of the things that makes Firefly so extraordinary is it hits the ground running. Yeah. Despite Fox's best efforts to sabotage I know, that. I know. And, you know, I don't think there's a bad episode in that show's all too short run. I agree. Although I do think there are a few that are better than others. Absolutely. There are highs and lows, but the low, even the lows are still great. But the so. lows are really, really strong. Yeah. And, you know, as it's also showing the change in how network TV approach things though. Mm -hmm. You and I have talked, I know about, about this in, in regard to Buffy. And it's also true with Angel, you know, without the little netlet, Buffy wouldn't have made it. It's ratings were never that fantastic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we live in a world now where if you don't make it by your second episode, you're going to get canceled for real. No one is going to give you that break. Yeah. Not on network anyway. Well, and so Buffy and Angel both benefit actually from the, the smaller network. Firefly, we'll talk about this when I eventually get to Firefly, but Firefly, I think its doom was written on the walls because it was at a major network. Yeah. And that yeah. network had notes on every single detail. Well, and it had it had the slot of death and I mean there's a lot there that we can talk about yeah. when we when we get there, but but yeah, I think Angel and Buffy both benefited from being on startups, essentially. Yep. And we're seeing that, I think, with the new with the new ish streaming platforms too. I mean, because there is a running joke that for at least a year or two on Netflix, it was like <laughs> you would have gotten Phantom Dennis Guardian Spirit. <laughs> I mean, I think that might still stand with Netflix, but but Netflix's thing now is like Netflix. I, 
I don't know. I want to make this joke and it might be off color, but Netflix is like the Joss Whedon of networks because <laughs> Joss, what always annoyed me about Joss before I knew enough to know there are many reasons why I should be annoyed at Joss. What always annoyed me about Joss was what eventually became the unbearable cliche of no one can ever stay happy in his shows. If anyone ever get like, ain't it's, it's the angel theory writ large over everything Joss has ever done. A moment of happiness. He has a moment of perfect happiness. A moment of happiness means, oh, now you've got to suffer like hell, dude. <laughs> um, and that's what Netflix is. Yeah. It's just a given at this point that Netflix will let you, if they like you, they'll let you have two seasons. And then they will just cancel your ass after the second season, no matter how far into your story you are. Like Netflix is very generous on giving people shows, but not very generous on letting them stick around for very long. Right. So. Right. Um, but yeah, you'll get, you'll get your two seasons. Yeah. So, which is great. If you go in knowing that and you plan your story to fit in that space, that is amazing. But I agree. <sighs> Anyways, let's do a podcast about streaming networks. God knows there's enough of them. Good Lord. And I have virtually all of them. God damn it. Do you really? I really do. We, one of the last holdouts, oh my God, one of the last holdouts was Discovery Plus, because we watch a lot of stuff on like Discovery and the Science Channel and, and the uh -huh. History Channel and all that stuff. And every day we were just being bombarded with uh, advertisements for Discovery Plus, and they really made it sound like, you know, all this stuff that you love, eventually it's only going to be on Discovery Plus. <laughs> Uh, so we broke down and we got that. And sure enough, we watch a ton of stuff on that now. Wow. So I'm trying, I don't know which ones I don't have. We have Peacock for God's sakes. We literally only got Peacock because that's the only place where you can find, uh, psych. Ha. Huh. Okay. <laughs> which we always planned to do an entire series rewatch and we have not started. We got Peacock for it and we still haven't watched it. Uh, God, the world. <laughs> this town needs I think, an enema. I, I, I think that just sums up the last 18 months, really. <laughs> the world. The world. Uh, all right. Well, uh, this was good. Thank you for doing back-to-back -back episodes Thank you me. so much for having me. Give me a, you know, give me a buzz. I'm around. You will be back. Um, I know you're a Doyle super fan and so i i, I wanted I, I had told you that we had that i had somebody scheduled mm -hmm. but that i had never heard back from them of course as soon as i told you that they they got in touch with you i heard back from them so good for them i do, so yes i'm very happy that they will be back on the show they'd only been on the show one time before so i didn't feel like i could be like nope sorry i'm giving it to dale no no uh, not at all but i'm very happy they'll be back but, uh, I'll be interested to hear what they have to say. Yes. Yes. I don't know why I'm being so vague about all this, but it, that's a little ways down the line. Anyways, yeah. um, I'm glad you got to spend some time with Doyle. Me too. I'm glad we I got really to have am. these conversations and uh, you will absolutely be back. Um, do you want to let the listeners know where they can find you or what you've done? I mentioned you were a, uh, an author, a scholar and a, Hot chick with superpowers. You want to talk? Do <laughs> you want to talk about any of those three things? Um, sure, sure. 
Uh, I originally got into the Whedon verse by writing Faith and Choice in the works of Joss Whedon and doing some other related chapters in edited collections, but Faith and Choice is the big one published under the name K. Dale Kuntz, no relation to Dean. It's a very good book. It is a very good book. Or so I say. <laughs> so um, I say. So I say. It's got Spike and Caleb on the cover. On the cover. Come on. What more do you ask for? And if you do read it, and I hope you do, make sure to read the footnotes because all the good stuff is in the footnotes. <laughs> it's It's just... A, tr a true thing. All the good stuff is in the footnotes. <laughs> you can find me, of course, on all your major social media platforms. Look for K. Dale Kuntz and you'll find me without too much trouble. And I went on from the Whedonverse to write about some other shows like Breaking Bad and Babylon 5. And I have a real fascination for how lawyers are presented in popular culture. I'm the area chair of the Southwestern Popular and American Culture Association's chair uh, area on lawyers in the legal profession in popular culture. I'm hoping to get into Perry Mason soon. The, uh, the reboot of that is really interesting. Okay. I have not watched it, but... Oh! Isn't that... Uh, that's Matthew Reese on that, right? Yes, from okay. the Americans. Yeah, I love him, so... And he is, seriously, he's phenomenal to the point I forget he's Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> Make of that what you will. That seems but like not... a that seems like a dig at the Welsh. Have you? Well, you're an Archer fan. I am. Yes, I am an Archer fan. Yes. He's he's the uh, the freedom fighting Welshman. <laughs> oh in one man! One of those episodes. Yeah. Now I need to do an episode. I need to do a podcast about Archer. Uh Oh, oh, we will talk if you do, if you go that route. Okay. But uh, I have really, really enjoyed my time here on the podcast, and I will try to be gracious about giving up my soapbox to someone else for a while. <laughs> okay. But it's been fun to be back to back. Yes. Well, thank you for doing this. It's always great to talk to you. Um, and thank you, everybody at home, for listening. Uh, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website Cons with Dead. Uh, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. We will be on uh, Spotify someday, I promise. I'll get around to it. We'll be there someday. Um, but uh, anyways, wherever you find us, if it's if it's a possibility, please rate us or write us a review. That helps spread the word and find new listeners. Uh, if you'd like to, if you have questions for me or any of my guests, or if you just want to join the conversation, you can drop us an email. As I said before, conswithdead at gmail.com, or you can follow us on social media. Twitter is at conswithdead, Facebook at conversations with dead people. Um, next, recurring guest and friend of the show, Michael Holland, is back. Um, and with the move from Sunnydale to LA, we are on his turf finally. Uh, he joins me to speak with uh, Angelino Authority on episodes 106, Sense and Sensitivity, and 107, Bachelor Party, which is going to be fun. I know. You want to come back for a third one? You want to join Michael and come talk about Bachelor Party? I love Bachelor Party. You just let me know if you want in. I'm just saying, I, I love Bachelor Party. <laughs> All right. So y'all will have a lot of fun with that one. We, we will. We will. Uh, until then, please remember, if nothing we do matters, then all that matters is what we do. I've to pieces.
each time. 